Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. It's Teen. I'm hosting with Jess. What's going on, Jess? Yo, nothing much. Uh, very special returning guest, Kenny Shu. What's going on, Kenny? Hey, good to be back on. Yeah. Last yeah. time we talked, it was a somewhat different world. And uh, since then, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're a go-to voice in America, actually, for uh, things related to affirmative actions. One of the, one of the most, um, I guess, one of the topics that we... We've talked a lot too about on this pod. I think there's just so much to that topic, and you've um, been very outspoken. And you've written a book. We've talked about your book last time you were on, and now since we're in the sort of like post SFFA, post affirmative action world, I guess it would be you know we thought it'd just be super interesting to talk to you and get your thoughts on on the whole journey. Yeah, we actually did a pod on it ourselves. Um, we actually read the ruling and this like really broke it down. Um, and I gotta say, Kenny, like, I really actually, like, the thing that, like, when I reached out to, uh, to invite you onto the pod, I really respected that you were just like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Um, without, like, even ask, like, really even, like, asking, like, what our positions were or anything, I really respect that, that willingness to just kind of, like, jump in there, like, like, screw it, yeah, they can be antagonistic, or they can be positive, supportive, like, we're just gonna go for it. Um, it was kind of an interesting thing, like, I've been reaching out to a couple of people on both, kind of both sides of this aisle. And mm. consistently, like, like the people who are, you know, very extremely mad about this ruling were pretty much uniformly unwilling to speak, like, either, like, to me personally, or even just, like, in the D- DMs, or much less willing to, like, come out and express themselves openly on the pod, uh, which I thought was a, mm. just a, just putting it out there was kind of an interesting, like, behind the scenes look at just how these kind of, like, how, how, um, how these appearances kind of kind of take shape, uh, like the like the mechanics of actually inviting someone a guest on and trying to invite them to speak on their positions and stuff. So, uh, I mean, like you've been on a real tear uh, for people who haven't been who haven't been following. Like, uh, basically, like every like it seems like every mainstream news channel that was covering this and all of them were for like a period of like a week and a half. It seems it seems like you were like the go to guy it for the pro um, like the like. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to put okay the people who were who were like who supported this the Supreme Court decision in striking down affirmative action in SFFA um did everyone just like reach out to you or like like do you were you representing students for fair admissions or like just representing yourself or how did they find you hmm that's a good question um so I was sort of handed the role of being the unofficial spokesman of uh this case um, I'm on the board of Students for Fair Admissions, if that means anything to you guys. I was actually, I'm actually the only elected board member of Students for Fair Admissions, which has about 25,000 members. And they only elect one board member. So as some of you know, the president is Edward Bloom, who is sort mm-hmm. of, the New York Times describe him as this like sneaky, covert operative, just putting everything in the Supreme Court. But I'm sort of, you know, an attack dog, basically. Mm-hmm. Um in the media and I just acquired that reputation. And then suddenly I became affiliated with students for fair admissions. But my passion about this case came long before I was officially affiliated with students for fair admissions. If people don't I know. remember. Yeah. Yeah. So basically like what happened on that day, I knew I was going to get a lot of hits and I got over 45 media hits that mm-hmm. weekend. Um, all mainstream outlets. 
Yeah, you but, were just living in that suit for a, yeah. you, <laughs> you, I was, you were talking it head on. Yeah. yeah, I was going to bed at like 12 a.m., waking up at like 6 a.m. You know, I just it was it was crazy. Just took naps like whenever I could. It was sort of like a media marathon. Um, but basically what happened was like I knew I was going to get hits. But then we also I also consulted with a PR firm to make sure that I would get the hits that I wanted. The hits that I really wanted were CNN. Basically, I wanted I wanted to get an NPR. I wanted to get on hostile networks because I just wanted them exposed for, you know, the BS justifications that they would give for Harvard's position. And I did. You know, you go watch my clips. Don't don't take my word for it. But you know, you can go watch them on YouTube yourself. Yeah, Abby I was going to ask you like CNN you were this morning you... that stuff. So yeah, that's sort of how that's sort of how it happened. So I did pay a little money to get a little extra PR attention, but I knew I was going to get PR attention anyway. And this was through you, like SFFA wasn't covering that PR or like putting you like it, the the media quests weren't coming through them to you, right? They were hitting you up personally. They were hitting me up for sure. Okay. They were hitting me yeah. up, okay. and then I had a publicist who helped me to connect with a couple of CNN people too. I mean, props to you. It's 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 tough, like wandering onto, onto. Jess, I'm uh, curious who who were you getting uh, blanked by in in terms of like people who were vehemently opposed, let's say, to SFFA's um, quest. Was it I mean, like I, Asian American, you know, yes, academic yes. types? Okay, I definitely knew that I wanted I I wanted to speak to other Asian Americans. Um, a couple of the blue check types that we've been calling out. Um, Surprisingly, like I'm not blocked by very many people, so I'm still able to like like just slide their their DMs. Um, usually, I just get ignored. Um, one person, an academic, we've been pretty vocal about was pretty strongly like, if you are going to remotely support this decision, then I'm not going to have anything to do with this. And it's like, well, like you realize, like like, and this is a prominent academic who t- constantly, like, 99% of the time will st- constantly rail about these white supremacist institutions that are out to oppress people of color. And then, like, and then you're talking about, like, if you're, like, being against this decision, since it's not black people on trial, it's not Asian people on trial, it's fucking Harvard on trial, right? Like, you want you want you mm-hmm. like, if I'm not going to be willing to be pro Harvard. Then you don't want to talk to me. like this. It's a it's an ideologically ludicrous position. Like at any other time, for any other situation, they'd be first to t- call Harvard a like white supremacist, rotten, corrupt institution. But all of a sudden, you bring like affirmative action in the picture, and then now like the cr- the quote correct position to take is being pro Harvard, whatever that means. Like I just thought that was just such a brain dead position to take. That's just emotional. Uh, but without even really any like founding for that emotionality either. So just, I really wanted to to talk, like to really break that down, but they weren't willing to. So, you know, okay, sure. Uh, we're going to talk to the, we're going to, obviously we're going to talk to the person who wants to talk to us. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to this conversation here. Mm. Um, so Kenny, I was going to like, even on a total media marathon, like if you don't mind, like, do you mind sending us a couple links to like, like appearances that you're particularly proud of? Like there's one of my favorites where you were speaking on CNN and then like the host just kind of like the host just kind of like shut you off was just kind of like, okay. And next segment. Cause it was like a point 
you know. Yeah, well, she was she was trying to shut me off, but I actually yeah. was able to get in one last parry. She was like, well, I don't think the standards are lowered for black Americans, but Kenny Shu, nice to see. You. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The standards are lowered for black Americans. Hold up. 273 points. SFFF data confirmed by the court. Standards are lowered. Uh, and then she was like, Kenny Shu, thanks for coming. But yeah, yeah, I, like, yeah, I, I couldn't let her get away with it. I, I don't, I mean, I personally think it's, I mean, it, it's rhetorical, obviously, but I think what pisses me off is not that framing, but the frame, I mean, what the framing that I think, that I think of is that, no, it's, it's standards are raised for Asian students, right? But I don't care whether they're lowered for black students or whatever. The problem is, and, and they're always focusing on black and Latino students and they're avoiding white students. And my thing is like, look, I mean, the thing about this case that really annoys me is that Asian students are held to a different standard, period. You know, you can call it lowering standards of other groups or you can call it raising standards of our groups. And Roberts, I think, said this like, you know, race is never used as a negative, only a positive. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. What's you the, what, inevitably, if you inevitably have to fall back thing. on stereotypes, which means you are typing people based on race. So we've come right back around full circle to that argument there. Um, I mean, that, that's one, it was one of the things that outraged me most about the, uh, the reception to, and I think it's lazy thinking, lazy, ideologically bound thinking. But the entire case was, you know, the heart of it was, um, did Asian American students suffer from racial discrimination in this case? That's the heart of it. And you ha- whatever conclusion you want to draw based on the ruling, it has to start there, that Asian Americans students were facing discrimination. You can have two opinions about this. You can say like, you can say like, that's fine or that's bad, but you have to at least accept that it was happening. So this kind of, this kind of, this quicksand, like rhetorical argumentation that was going on, which is both that uh, if both that Asian Americans weren't being discriminated against and Oh, look over there. We're actually going to be looking at black and Brown students. Not, no, the heart of it was about Asian Americans here. Yeah. Just that was, you know, Kenny, this is something that we talked about in our own pod where we're looking Mm -hmm. at this strictly from a legal perspective. It's like, look, everyone's pinning this onto like a conservative court, but the, the the fact of age. And I I mean that in the legal sense, the fact Mm -hmm. of anti-Asian discrimination was determined at the district court level. And that was in Boston. That was in the hometown of Harvard. Uh, and they lost. I mean, SFA FA lost the court, uh, the case. Yeah. But the, it was on the record. There was a factual finding that there was discrimination. They just found that it was legal. That's, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. But yeah, I mean, the um, uh, I, I, I was disappointed to see how the media immediately went to how this harms black Americans and this harms. Well, well clarify, because I am, I, I want to get into the specifics. T- talk about the complexities there. Cause I think I want people to really understand this case. Okay, sure. So, uh, district court, basically, you know, the case had to progress through three levels of federal court. Right. And so at the district court level, that's when all of the data about Harvard's admissions was revealed. That was like back in 2018. This is 2023 guys. So this case has been around for like six, seven years. So back in 2018, we got somebody, Students for Fair Admissions got somebody to study the data. Harvard had their own economist, David Card, study the data. SFFA had an economist named Peter Sidiakono study the, the data, and they came to different conclusions about the data. David Card found no discrimination from Harvard against Asians, which the, that was the rationale the district court used. The justice, Alison Burroughs, was an Obama appointee 
very much, you know, pro affirmative action in general. Um, so, and also, you know, she was constrained by Grutter v. Bollinger. So, which is the case that allowed limited affirmative, which allows affirmative action. So, but I contest in my book, An Inconvenient Minority. I don't care what the heck David Card said about Harvard discriminating against Asians. This, the, the students for fair admissions analysis is the better analysis. And the reason why is because David's cards analysis assumes that Harvard's use of the personality score against Asians, which most people here know, gave Asians the lowest personality score out of all the races. Card assumed that it was Harvard's use of the personality score was legitimate. As in, right, it's a bit of it wasn't discriminatory. So if you include, if you factor in the personality score, then yeah, you the, the discrimination sort of disappears. It's still there, but it sort right. of disappears. So you're saying but, there there was there was on its face an agreement because I, I I remember at the mm-hmm. summary judgment level, there was there was they found against Harvard to say no. Look, they've SFFA has shown enough of a pattern here that we I think we need to move on to like a trial. Right, we need to move mm-hmm. into the discovery phase. We got to look into this. Yeah, and what you're saying is. That S, uh, that Harvard was able to pull out some uh, some some witness. So I mean, obviously, witness testimonies biased towards whoever's paying the witness, but they were able to pull stuff out to say, "Oh, look, there's what looks like discrimination on its face isn't discrimination because there's this other personality. Pers- I don't think it's called a personality. Score. It's a personal score that uh, is actually kind of where things leveled out. That that's why you're seeing the sort of uh, mm-hmm. discrepancies in test scores and GPAs and stuff like that, right? Right, because Asians mm-hmm. are lowest in personality, and right. that's the third right. factor for how Harvard grades. In fact, it's determinate in like 80% of admissions. Uh, it's nearly so, impossible to get into Harvard if you don't have a two or higher on their personality so, score. So, Kenny, this is help me understand this, because I've, I've never fully understood this about Harvard's position. If Harvard's saying that they don't fact that they they're not doing any racial discrimination, which is what they said, they said not, n- not no single student has had their admissions decision, you know, decided by race or anything like that. Why are they defending affirmative action? That this is the thing I don't quite get about their position. They're saying like we're not really using race, but yet we still want the uh, we still want to defend the right to use race because they're freaking liars. That's why you're having. They're having I mean, they this is inconsistent, right? Out of their cereal bowl in the morning at seven a.m. <laughs> when they get up out of their Ivy League luxury bed because they they are discriminating against Asians and they want Asians to be discriminated. So they the, their true position is they want racial preferences against Asian Americans. They wouldn't be spending $40 million plus on legal fees if they didn't want discrimination against Asian Americans. What do you they make of – discrimination against Asian Americans because it sounds bad, but their true position is discrimination against well, Asian what, Americans. What do you make – because I'm asking this genuinely because I didn't – I haven't looked into it and I don't know what it means. But I've heard that since this lawsuit was filed, that subsequent classes at Harvard, the number of Asian – the percentage of Asian students went up dramatically to mm-hmm. over 25%. Whereas before no, it was true. claimed to. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Still discriminating. Asians would make up 38 to 43% of Harvard if they were graded on academics alone. No, I'm just curious what you think that means, though. Why Why was the number increasing uh, over over that period? Was this uh, in th- reaction they, to the lawsuit or was this just some I other I think it was reason? in reaction to the lawsuit. Yeah, I think that there was some pressure among the faculty to try to... Um, dress up the numbers a little bit. Yeah. And so where do you think that leaves us, you know, with this, 
because you know I, I I view the Supreme Court ruling as being larger than affirmative action. I think there's a conservative. There's long been a conservative uh, project, uh, legal project, I would say, to go back on a lot of uh, 14th Amendment jurisprudence. So I, I actually connect this case to um, uh, you know to the whole overturning of Roe, the Dobbs yeah. case. Yeah, uh, but that's that, that. That I think is beyond the interest of most people who were brought into um, affirmative action because specifically of the discrimination that occurs in higher learning admissions, right? So, what do you think le- this leaves us in terms of? Because I hear so many takes of like, you think that this brings back meritocracy? No, it's going to be the opposite. The you know the elite universities are going to drop academic scores altogether. And, you know, they're, they're, they're just going to go by a completely different scale now where, mm-hmm. um, you know, instead of holding Asian students to a higher standard, they just won't be even looking at GPA. And right. So everything goes to a soft metric. So like you said, like being able to like just on academics alone, 38 to 40 some percent, we're no longer able to get that kind of data anymore. If you if you take out like the SAT or GPA or something, all of which have been floated in various circles that these schools are trying to implement. Um, I don't know. Mm, my personal sorry. say from the reading of the the ruling from Roberts uh, from Roberts majority opinion, um, like I I'd, I'd, I'd love to get your take on this. If this is directionally correct or not? It seemed like Harvard was going to the mats to kind of defend their own like black box policy. So it's really just to, just to retain power over their admissions process. Like Roberts, like it's a pretty it's a pretty epic line. Roberts calling them out saying uh, the the like Harvard's position on, on all of on the use of race in their admissions is essentially, quote, trust us. Right. So they can't they did not or they could not produce firm metrics on the general uh, benefits of diversity on campus. They could not point to any concrete measures for uh, that could be placed under judicial review. So it seemed like really just it's an institution trying to protect its own ability to uh to manage itself, uh, does that is, does that seem like a like an accurate read? Like yeah. it's asking for space outside the law if it came to right. that by saying like this yeah. narrow exception for the use of race carved out by Backey, right? Mm-hmm. That that diversity. First of all, like di- diversity was never legal as like reparations for past harm, uh, but there was a narrow exception that you know campuses had discretion over the like the general you know benefits of diversity on yeah. campus so that's the exception that they were they were dragging to the mats to defend their position on this yeah i mean i could answer every every question that you guys just throw through at me but before i get there before we get to the specifics i just want to very much clarify the big picture here um when i when i grew up like as a kid and you know i read you know, American born Chinese. And I'm I'm mostly talking to an Asian American audience here and people who are sympathetic with Asian Americans. So I think I can say this, you know, and I cared about Asian status in America. Harvard University is the number one progenitor of anti-Asian prejudice in America. They're the number one progenitor. There is no institution even close. And I, and I was fortunate enough in my life to identify that Early on in my life where I was able to make, you know, a, a stand against that. It's my, it was so, it, when I grew up, it was literally my God-given mission to defeat, like, the number one 
most prejudiced institution against Asians in America, which is Harvard University. And that, that is really what the Supreme Court did, does. This decision does. It is a huge boost for Asian American status in America today. And a deserved boost because Asians fought for it and Asians deserve it based on merit. So I don't want to get into like, you know, we will get into the specifics. We will get into how Harvard will try to avoid it. But I just wanted to say that right off the bat. This is a huge win for Asian Americans specifically. I, I mean, I agree. We can go into the spe- mm-hmm. more details on that. I kind of want to tease out the specifics of that, but j- directionally, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this like it goes back to the ultimate point of the uh, the, the case and how badly um, how badly the media tried to hide that that this was ultimately about a case of racial discrimination against a minority, a, mm-hmm. a, one of the smallest minorities in a, racial minorities in America, and the fact that this is actually a, a win in the realm of racial justice was completely, completely submerged. I found that outrageous. Like, yeah. like how do liberal-minded people who ostensibly stand for racial justice and, you know, it, it, the writing of inequality, the writing of historical wrongs, you look at this and your immediate reaction is to demonize the group that was leading this. Like, to me, that's just that's just mind-boggling and a real and a real eye-opener. I imagine a lot of Asian Americans saw this, saw this reaction, and and uh, you know, there are some thoughts brewing in the in the general population. You have to you have to hate, you have to in some ways, sort of viscerally hate your own culture of achievement to dislike this ruling if you're Asian American. And unfortunately, I do know some Asian Americans who are cynical enough to hate that. But yeah, I mean that that's that that is that's not my position. <laughs> well, I think I the want... diff- I think the difference is is merit versus status. You know, I think there's people who love status, but merit is sort of a side it's it's not merit merit runs a distant second. Yeah. I think I like, to a lot I of people like in status. status acquired by merit. That's what I like. I think I think that Asians should get the status that they deserve by merit. That that's that's the position that I'll take on that. That's an interesting one. I want to pick up on that later. But um, yeah, you were you yeah. um, we're we're getting far farther away. You said you wanted to respond and answer to to some. I mean, of there's the a yeah, there's a lot of sorry. That was big picture because I needed to get that out. Small picture. Um, you asked, is Harvard going to uh, skirt the ruling? The answer is yes. Harvard will try to skirt the ruling. So we will fortunately. People at Harvard, and Harvard is a rich enough and big enough target that there will be plenty of ways to sue Harvard to get them to fully comply with the ruling. Um, it will happen in future district court rulings now that Grutter v. Bollinger is effectively overturned and Harvard's admissions policy is remanded and they have to make a new admissions policy that doesn't discriminate against Asians. That is the court order. They have to do that and they will not do that. They, it has to satisfy the court. Um, basically, it's like a Brown v. Board of Education for Harvard specifically. So yeah, Harvard will try to skirt it. Um, UNC, I think their response was a lot better. They said they will fully comply and obey the ruling. Harvard's response was defiant, like they wanted to dis- disobey the law. So I like UNC's chances coming out of this better. Um, but no, I mean, of course, you know, that that's just the way that legalities work. But I do predict that by 2030, uh, Harvard's... Um, and Harvard's racial demographics will properly reflect 
where they should be in a, in a merit-based economy. You know, do you believe in uh, just a quick question? Do you believe in Harvard's power as an elite making institution? Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. there's a reason yeah, I mean, why people want to like, go ahead. Yeah, it's not, a, it's totally not a gotcha. It's just one thread of the many that kind of led into my thinking on this. It's a, uh, it's part of the, uh, part, part of, Part of the tension here is that we all want we all uh, had an eye towards Harvard because we knew that it had like king making abilities, right? Like if you go to Harvard, you carry that brand with you, you make the connections, you you know. I think the actual education itself is is kind of a secondary factor here. It's just the it's the fact that you went to Harvard that 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 uh, that gives you a, a sort of boost in the society, and especially for people who are relatively new to the country, that is actually that that has some capital. That has some value as capital, social capital, and economic capital as well. Um, yeah, you know, it does. but but there's a little bit of tension there because, like you said, you know, you identified Art Harvard very early on as a as a major, if not the most anti Asian institution in the country, pro, like promulgating and propagating, you know, discrimination against Asian Americans. Here, there's a little bit of tension then, like that 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 our desire to gain entry to this institu- this institution that has historically been against us. It's kind of like reaffirming its king making status here. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a catch twenty two. Like like for instance, like. Like when we talk about like when we talk about these admissions, I noticed one thing that was completely left out of the equation was like the possibility of expanding the number of seats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, and I think the, the the we had like the tension that that teen brought up, right? There's this like this this uneasy relationship between like merit and status here, right? Like if we blew if we if the ruling was saying like no Harvard you have to accept everyone above a certain threshold and this could like triple or quadruple or quintuple your 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 class size um, that effectively that dilutes its status making power so I noticed like there was never an argument that says that like Harvard yeah. should be forced to accept everyone past a threshold it's we're accepting the terms of the game that we have this very limited number of seats and it's allocating each seat. That's at stake here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not. That's not really a question here. Just kind of, just kind of like unspooling a thread that was going through my mind here. Like, like part of the tension here is like, okay, Harvard is racist. Then the, one of the rea- one valid reaction is, fuck Harvard. Then I don't want to go there. I don't want my children to go there. Um, and the other option is, no, we're going to force Harvard to uh, to accept, you know, to abide by rules that seem more fair to me. But one stance definitely reaffirms and kind of reifies Harvard's un- unique ability to mint il- social elites. As opposed yeah, to like more. Points. I mean, like, I think like for, like coming from the West Coast. Uh, I think that the power of the Ivies is substantially less because we have our own institutions going up, it, it, powerful, you know, e- educational institutions, right? We have like our own, like, quote, Harvard, right? We have Stanford, we have Caltech, we have, you know, a very strong, very, uh, very distinguished UC system. Yeah, um, and you so banned like, racial preferences as early as right. 1994. right. Um, so, I mean, just kind of spitballing here, like this, this weird tension between merit and status here is this one that I've been kind of wrestling with personally, like at one, like, which one are we valuing more here? Or is there, is there a way for this to coexist that doesn't, you know, end up, you know, blowing up in our faces later on? Mm -hmm. Like if, if, 
Like, I don't know if you saw, think- like, Jeff Yang weighing in on this whole thing. I think he just, he said the quiet part out loud, basically. Um, um, it, when he when he's taught when he's arguing with someone about you know his own son's you know college chances and then he just responds to someone would you really want to go to a school with what 60 percent asians like and the answer is is it's implied obviously not that would be terrible that well would be not like according to, to the um generic white people that i talk to all the time on talk radio yeah. most of these people most of, and these are mostly conservative people you know mm-hmm who I talk to all the time on radio for various things, including promoting my new book, School of Woke. Don't let the um, right-wing title confuse you. It's going to be a really good book on our K-12 schools and why they're failing for black Americans. But um, but I've I talked a lot on right-wing radio and conservative white radio, and they're, they're like, I don't care. I don't care that Harvard's 60% Asian. I, I mean, I would send my kid to that all the time. So it's not like every American, they, they wouldn't care. Or, you know, you could say they're unconsciously biased. They would say that, but I have no reason to believe that. I think that it's just, it's a segment of these people that care. Okay. Just, I think, you know, I thought about, I mean, the contradiction you're raising is very interesting, right? It's like, why are we trying so hard? I mean, SFFA spent millions of dollars fighting for the right to attend an institution that they have proven is highly anti-Asian. Why would you want to go there, right? I would say, though, that in defeat, my my thinking about Harvard has changed a bit, which is that Harvard is not just an institution. It's also contested space. I wouldn't doubt, and I would, I, and I know this at least to a degree to some prof- to, to some professors that I've, I, I either know or, or have read about. Adrian Vermeule as an example, right, at the law school. And I think to an extent, Jeannie Suck-Gerson also kind of sees this. Uh, Harvard is not monolithic at all. It does, you know, it has tenured professor who do have academic freedom. And I do think that there is maybe a minority of a, of a faction there, but I think it's growing in influence that in defeat, this other faction that is against the, um, I think the excesses of the, of, of, of Bill Fitzsimmons's admissions department, you know, I think they're, that they're going to have a little bit more sway at Harvard now, right? And I've, I've even noticed um, post-SFFA that the New York Times as another, you know, leading elite liberal institution, paper of record, was surprisingly mute and and almost uh, sort of, they were almost a bit sanguine about the whole thing. And they had, uh, I forgot the name of that, prof- they, had, they had that professor from, they had that black professor come in and write a whole thing about how uh, affirmative action is really not what it, it's a different beast than when it was devised. There's a ton of problems with it. The culture that has come up around it is extremely problematic. They had another one piece about how if you really care about black students, mm-hmm. th- this case isn't really that relevant. This is a mm-hmm. tiny sliver of a minority. I mean, you know, really you're talking about we need to focus more about, you know, the base infrastructure of public education that's a much more important thing that we got to talk about um they 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 seem to be shying away from this and i thought that in defeat it kind of revealed that there might be more forces aligned against this stuff than we had previously thought when it was the law i don't Mm -hmm. know kenny if you're picking up on that but that's that's what i'm saying but i want to remind you in the audience that that to not take for granted that the New York Times is sanguine on it. Um, 
they accepted defeat. The New York Times accepted defeat long before this ruling because we were right. And we pushed, you know, and we push and put media pressure on them. And they knew it. They know it deep in their hearts that we're right. So they're they're not willing to come out like, for example, what they did after Roe v. Wade. Um, because Roe v. Wade, the right had never conquered the public narrative on abortion the way the right has conquered the public narrative on affirmative action. And um, like right now, 75% of Americans don't believe race should be in college admissions, you know, including majorities of blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. You yeah, know, do you remember, I, Jess, do you remember that tweet by Stop Asian Hate that just straight up lied about that? They cited yeah, that they Vox even, article, and the Vox yeah. article didn't even support what they were saying, yeah. that 70% were, of Asians supported affirmative action. That, yeah. They actually had they, community they, guidelines come out and say, actually, the article doesn't even say that. <laughs> yeah, this, it yeah. showed that 70, like, of, of a, a significant majority of Asian Americans, I forget the exact number, but probably in the 70s somewhere, were generally supportive of, like, like, making sure that my policies and ensure that minorities were able to get a fair shake out there. But it was like, tw- but you know, two questions down when it's specific to college admissions, it was like 20% of Asian Americans were in favor of, of, uh, of, of, you know, affirmative action as she was, as she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a so decline, a complete... by the way, that's a decline from 10 years ago when actually more Asians supported race preferences. So we I mean, have the contradictions have gotten more. too. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's good to see because the contradictions have gotten a little too extreme. Like if you have, if you're able to think two thoughts at once, you can see like just how untenable ideologically and practically this collection of policies we call affirmative action was to implement. It caused everyone problems at all levels um so it's actually good to get some like like clarity like legal clarity around what is what can and cannot be done with respect to race in these policies which doesn't preclude like putting new laws on the books if i'm if i'm not mistaken right uh it doesn't preclude what? Sorry. Well, that's it's a it's kind of an interesting like meta theme for the for these Supreme Court rulings. Like they come out and we all treat them like it's like nerd Super Bowl or something. We all like argue over the the results or something, and then and they kind of leave it. But like it seems like in a lot of these uh, in a lot of these cases, sometimes what the what the justices are saying is that this it, like it's actually a little bit inappropriate to be relying solely on a Supreme Court ruling, like. Yeah. Like the legislative mm-hmm. branch can definitely like like Roe v. Wade, um, the 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 most recent Supreme Court case on what was I forget what the Dobbs no. Dobbs yeah Dobbs mm-hmm. yeah uh, like and we mentioned this on on our on the pod we did about affirmative action too mm-hmm. like there's it's made explicit that the justices say like okay like all you guys have to do you guys meaning like lawmakers have to yeah. all you have to do is just put a law on the books about abortion right like that's all you guys have they, to do you guys have been saying that, that for. Decades. decades they've said they were saying that in fact in row itself you know yeah. um but but you know it's a political calculation they want to punt it to an institution that's not politically uh you know it's not politically uh exposed you know the no, way Congress I, I think, is in. no i actually think the supreme court made the right and logical decision in both sffa and dobbs like dobbs their decision was right because roe is is not constitutional I mean, what like a, a a trimester system in the Constitution? What the who the heck? I, I, made I disagree that? with you, but I, I I I agree with you, but from a different direction, yeah. which is I don't think Roe was ever really that protective of abortion rights anyway. And I think exactly. that if if liberals were serious about it, and I am serious about it myself, mm-hmm. I I think I would like to see that law in the books. 
Um, yeah. But the uh, the lip, you know, uh, Obama probably among the most outspoken about this or or f- frank about it. Mm-hmm. They d- they didn't want to waste political capital on it, and so they they relied on Roe. They made Roe out to be a heroic win for liberals, and it's not. It's a it's mm-hmm. a really poorly written, ha- you know, half measure. It's yeah. both everything that the liberal. It's both what liberals wanted and uh, totally anathema to what liberals wanted, and and I nobody really read the, the and, and so is affirmative action, and right. so is Gruder. Uh, race as a plus factor. Oh, you're not allowed to use quotas, but race could be a plus factor in admissions. How the heck does that supposed to work? Yeah, Harvard no, I, I agree. I, like I said, I, we were yeah. talking about this. I think that the reason that Backy rejected uh, historical redress, which I think would have been a much better basis for affirmative action and much more in line with, I agree. yeah, it would have been much more in line with things like the Freedmen's Bureau and stuff, right? Yeah, I, you know. And I and Kenny, you know, I went to University of Maryland. I went. I won a scholarship there, a full merit scholarship, the year after the. I think it was the what is it, the Fourth Circuit in Maryland's the I forget what third, Fourth Circuit, or whatever, uh, said that the all you know the scholarship that the University of Maryland had earmarked only for black students that hmm. were clearly qualified because they had already gotten in and they de- demonstrated such a high level of academic achievement that the that the school wanted to give them money to attend mm-hmm. struck it down as not consistent with the principles of affirmative action and i'm like wait i thought affirmative action was supposed to help high achieving black students but you struck it down mm-hmm. you know and it, and it turned out to be too it was too much of a quota system and it didn't fit in line and i think the reason is because mm-hmm. they were scared they wanted to do it they wanted to support University of California. They wanted to support progressives, but they were scared to open up the Pandora's box of historical redress because then that would pave the way towards a push for reparations. It would, mm-hmm. you know, and so they said they did a half measure. And mm-hmm. I thought Backy and everything that came after that was a terrible half measure. And it was mm-hmm. humiliating to have to go through the kind of shit that we had to go through in the discovery and trial process of, of, of the, you know, of SFFA where they were basically like, no, Asian students deserve to be uh, dinged, you know, for having one dimensional personalities. And I'm like, okay, so not only do Asians have to quote, make way in this POC solidarity for black and Latino students, Mm -hmm. but we get, we don't even get thanked for it. We just get, you know, you it's like, we, I mean, the arguments are totally inconsistent. It's like, yeah, Asians have to make way for the greater good, but also you're not making way at all. Fuck all of you. (laughs) I'm like, what? What (laughs) the fuck is that? Yeah, yeah. I I just want before we go on to. Okay, I'm going to drive this. Well, anyway, just quickly, just to drive that conversation home from what you said, Teen. Um, the Asians. People ask, well, are Asians are wedge? Heck yeah, they're a wedge. Heck yeah. They're a wedge in the affirmative action dichotomy. But understand, it's not the Asians' fault that they're a wedge. It just so happens that if you have race preferences and you get to the stage that Asians are just going to be the victims and eventually something like this was going to have to happen. Now, I'm glad it happened when it did. But yeah, Asians are the wedge. And uh, But I was – I hopefully did at least a service to Asians in the sense that I, I helped Asians to realize this is also about their own dignity rather than just being pawns and, you know, either the right wing or the left wing. I agree. I, th- I thought the whole thing was supremely undignified. And I'm glad yeah. that they just threw that whole fucking, you know, that whole just that whole 
whatever you, that genre of cases or whatever. Just mm. please, no more. It was it was just yeah. undignified. Yeah. Well, I thought it was cathartic in a sense. Like I applied to college, you know, like twenty years ago, um, right? But I remember even then, like like everyone knew what was going on. Like I was applying to the IVs, you know, getting advice from older people. You know, people had gone through the system, or people had gotten rejected from the system. We all we were all talking about the Asian penalty, and we're talking like the late nineties into the early aughts here. So so that means in implying that it's it goes even further back than that. Like I was talking to people who graduated from college in the eighties who were talking about you know this discrimination against Asians. We had nothing to really base this on other than just being able to look at raw stats, stack it up, and then realize like the math just isn't isn't mathing here. Uh, like there's clearly discrimination, but being unable to pin like put pin it down. So like I just want to personally thank like SFFA and your your part in that organization to find to bring that to discovery, to see in such clear language the words that Harvard admissions people were actually using to describe us mm -hmm. and it's in the supreme it's, it's in the ruling roberts was quoting that extensively in the notes talking about the language these admissions officers were using to talk about their students in a really dehumanized um wrote stereotypical way talking about like oh you know stellar grades stellar scores but of course he's asian <laughs> ah, like whatever. great scores for a native american i mean this is a this is this is this is so like like you guys said undignified and it exposed all of that we finally mm -hmm. have the concrete proof of that stuff that like an entire like an entire generation plus of asians and everyone else probably too like we just didn't know. We knew it was happening, but could not. We're not. We were. We were not able to uh, definitively prove it. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, like Asians just had to kind of deal with this. Like you got in. Maybe your personality just does suck, right? That's yeah. kind of the implicit thing you're supposed to carry with you. You get rejected by these institutions. Your personality probably did suck. You probably weren't leadership material. That's that's yeah. the kind of like that's the thing that gets embedded in our psyches from a very formative age. I do want to raise a little bit of a caution flag here, though. Now, I think the conversation can shift because of the, um, you know, because of the, the victory that we kind of get kind of move on to other um, considerations here, which is that I do think that there is a degree of truth, a large degree of truth that Asians are being leveraged by both sides here. Right. I do think that, for example, uh, if you look at the way this case was talked about by the justices themselves, you know, the the rights of Asian American students was not really, f really at the front of their consideration here, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that we were simply tools, but I'm saying that Asian Americans brought up a a, a reason, a, an opportunity to question a larger system, not just affirmative action, but uh, 14th Amendment you know, interpretation at large. Okay. This is bigger than us. This whole thing is bigger than us. And I think I, you know, Kenny, you're, you say you're saying you're motivated by, you know, a very lifelong passion um, and dedication to stand up for Asian American rights. Right. And, and I feel the same way. And I do find that, you know, as much as I appreciate, I think some of the rationality that, has been brought into this discussion on the on the right on the rights. Let, let's say broadly, I want to say that very broadly. Okay, um, you know the same. You know, I don't think that the same people who would stand with Asians on this issue necessarily care about some of the other stuff that really is really troubling to me. 
for example, um, you know, Biden's Department of Justice recently, you know, has indicated that it's going to challenge the Florida law that, um, you know, restricts uh, land ownership um, from uh, it's not just Chinese citizens, but it's also a host of other unfriendly countries. But, um, you know, it's challenging that. And when I see that, I think this is sounding a lot awful lot like a cross between Japanese internment and Chinese exclusion. But I don't see the right standing up against that. I see Asians in Texas, for example, were similar. 34 states have these kinds of laws proposed. There's also federal legislation being proposed. I see uh, Chinese Americans in Texas protesting, but I don't see a lot Mm. of, you know, white conservatives backing them up on that. So... I'm just putting that caution out there. Oh, I don't know if good, you have any response to that, but yeah. Um, so wait, so do you agree with the decision, the students who fair admissions decision? Yeah, I do on a legal basis. Yes. And I, I've always felt that very, and I feel very strongly about it, Kenny. I felt that I found it to be a great loss of almost like national identity, like American identity to, take the position that these young people, these young Asian people simply don't have the right to stand up for what is actually the most important constitutional rights that they have, which is the equal protection under the laws, equal status. Mm-hmm. And to see the kinds of attacks that they were leveling against, I forgot the name of that one kid that Jeff Yang was going after. Um, you know, just going after yeah. him like oh, a bully. you know the one he was slamming and like oh, and by the way, he's Canadian. Yeah, so he's a grown yeah, man. He's a grown mm-hmm. man going after a nineteen-year-old kid, and I'm like, this kid is suing for his Fourteenth Amendment right, and the Supreme Court sided with him. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? You know, why are yeah. you sitting here blabbering about you know you're you're bullying someone right. for doing something that I think is celebrated in. It's as 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 American lore as as Americans are supposed to have their day in court. Yeah, yeah this is that- this is America. This is the heart of American civil law actually working as intended, so that mm, anybody correct. can can pursue their interest. They feel they were wronged, and they have they have the right to get heard. Yes, that's mm. that's the core of it. It's yes. working. In other words, they're mad that mm. it was working. But th- this is my point: is that I I come from this from a more legalistic perspective to say. I don't view I this has not changed my political alignments because I don't think I have a political alignment. I I feel politically homeless in America. I do, I'm not satisfied with either the left or the right and I mean that, you know, Republican party, Democrats or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, the Republican party in the states that they control, they have their own, you know, you say Harvard is the number one, you know, you know, dis, you know, uh uh discriminator of uh, against Asians, yeah, but I would say that there, there are, you know, okay, there are, there are, uh, the, in our history, and I think so now we're repeating some of that history. history. But yeah, Go ahead. what's that? I said, I mean, presently, when I said that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying in our history, I would say that there are things that we're seeing being resuscitated now that are, to me, far scarier than you know what Harvard's done, which is obnoxious and humiliating. But, you know, I think that when you look at the revival of this idea of, you know, land ownership exclusions, which goes to the real heart of Japanese internment, it wasn't just the camps. It, it was the it was the it was the government appropriation of 
you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of farmland that was at the heart of Japanese internment. And we're starting mm-hmm. to see something similar. I'm not going to say it's the same, but, you know, attaching mm-hmm. national origin to your right to own property in America. I don't think that's very American, but it's being proposed. It is a right wing led Republican led effort. You it's- mean national citizenry? Hmm? Not national origin. Chinese citizens. Citizen, citizenry. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was part- origin. I have, you could just define me as a national origin Chinese, but I'm not. Well, sure. look, there's 34 different laws and they're going to be varying according to what they define as, as, you know, being uh, uh, from such countries, right? Yeah. There, there's a wide diversity, but, yeah. you know, citizenry status is not a valid basis for, uh, for such discrimination. We know this. Yeah. Um, I disagree with the law. I disagree with that, with the whole idea that you should um, limit foreign uh, control or investiture of land only from certain countries. You know, I think that that's, um, it's like there are bad actors in every country and I think it has to be done on an individualized basis. Well, Imperial Japan was a real bad actor. Um, But, you know, I think, (laughs) look, the court in, you know, in, uh, SFFA, Roberts took every opportunity. This is probably the third time Roberts has overruled Korematsu. I mean, they want to put the nail in that coffin, and I'm glad he did it. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's as as closed as he hopes it is. Yeah. Um, well, this but is, it's going to be harder to pry it back open. Of the court, the Supreme Court, they could overrule Korematsu an 80th time, but. Ultimately, you know, the people, the legislature, they still have the ability to sort of enact laws against that. Yeah, that's a that's been an interesting theme to tug at, you know, in the you know, in like constitutional like legalism or no, what's the word? Um, the f- originalism, original originalism. Yeah. Um, like just reading through some of like Scalia's writings on this, you know, it seems like there's a there's a certain class of law that's you know primarily geared towards restraining the power of the government mm-hmm. and then there's laws restraining the power of the citizenry uh, mm-hmm. and like it in like loosely it it falls along conservative versus liberal but it does it's not it's not an easy fit it's a distinct mm-hmm. class of 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 focus of judicial focus mm-hmm. this one seemed to be in the conservative camp in the very classic sense it's restraining the power of the it keeps asking the question in the ruling like not directly but in indirectly saying do you do you actually want the state to get into the business of discrimination based on race like discrimination can be negative mm-hmm. which there's a lot of jurisprudence on it can also be positive, which is what which is what they were saying. Affirmative action was. It's a positive scheme. Yeah. It's a positive schema of racial discrimination meant to action. aid a certain. Yeah, but the question ultimately is: Well, do you want the state to have this power to begin with? And you know, if I think along those terms, my answer to that is going to be no. I I want my institutions. I want the state to be absolutely colorblind, which is distinct from civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this was an important distinction that was kind of getting that was get, really getting lost in the press, where everyone was kind of jumping on use, leveraging the force of the state to get what they want done onto yeah. other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, to go back to to drag that all the way back, then, like, I just wanted to give you a chance, like, in something other than like a five minute, you know, gotcha CNN segment. I wanted to talk through, like, like a 
like your political orientation, like talk, like you get criticized as like right wing or something, like you're just towing the line for conservatives or the Republican mm -hmm. Party specifically. But I mean, you disagreeing with the land appropriation, like the land, what what is it called? Like land restriction laws yeah. like that. Yeah. That's it means that like, I, I just want you to talk, like have the chance to talk through like what guides your political positioning. And, you know, insofar as you're out there talking to people, you know, trying to being being representing representing a certain point of view. What are you hoping that like other people, maybe especially other Asian Americans um, take away from that kind of political positioning? That you're mm. that you're putting forth mm. well i mean i appreciate the opportunity for sure um i mean the number one i mean I, the number one thing i care about is the truth really so for example like my positions on education for example like um iq is real so like people were saying like Oh, you know, racism is the cause of why black achievement is lower. No, it's not. It's a very minor cause. The major cause is cognitive differences. And a second major cause is family structure. And a third major cause are poor policies um, at the funding level of the schools. You can, you can have policies that could get black Americans closer to the standard that we all wish we could have, but you, you, you will, you can't completely change the racial achievement gap. So is that a liberal or is that a conservative position? I don't really care. It's the true position, you know? So I mean, is that, does that take you closer into like, like, um, uh, like, do you, do you just, uh, do you distinguish by race then like like are you taking like an absolutist view of iq that it's like an inherent uh an inherent inborn capacity or like a flexible metric that encompasses things like class upbringing family you know family structure culture you know social priorities stuff like that no i mean no it's clearly both it's clearly okay. genetic and environmental i mean the science okay will tell you that the, that that cognitive ability is both genetic and environmental usually in an early childhood is when it really gets formalized all iq is is by the way your performance on like a series of 100 abstract questions divided by your age and compared with other people your age that's all iq is it's not it's, it's nothing spooky you know it's like you want to get a better iq just do better at this uh, cognitive ability test this battery t this battery of exams here so um but uh you know i mean it's it's true though i mean so but then by that just to ahead. just to clarify um i mean by that metric then currently uh, if we just if if let's say we just took an iq survey of all like all children in the united states right now we would probably see a strong correlation to high IQ and like wealth in that case, right? Which is kind yes. of like a meritocratic aristocracy in that case, right? And yes. then the argument for meritocracy in that case then is that, well, since these children have high mm -hmm. IQs as we are testing right now, these are the children that deserve placement into these high elite universities. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and over time, this is the birth of a new mm -hmm. aristocracy, right? Um, so like, how do you balance Not necessarily. that? Okay. I mean, I just, that's aristocracy is about birthright. You could have an IQ of 78, like uh, I think Charles the fifth or something. Charles, the, some, some King was like basically born mentally deformed and yeah, still like king. 10 generations of inbreeding. By yeah. Because of birth. 10 generations yeah. of inbreeding, that's aristocracy. 
that's what we want to avoid because we would prefer well, what what my ideal vision for America is that the people with the best talent are given the resources to use their talent for the good of others. If you want to know my principle, that's that's my principle. Okay. Um I mean it's I mean I'm interested in reading your book when it comes out because I thought that was another another key point in the whole affirmative action debate that was getting completely lost that you know as as it is right now this fight over Harvard is a very elite problem right it's it's a battle that concerns mostly you know the children who have the means to even get to Harvard's doorstep to begin with when the real like bolstering K through 12 education and flattening out, you know, inequities in education at that level kind of obviates the need for affirmative act, race, affirmative act. Then finally, everyone is competing on the same footing. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Just as it is right now, like we already know that, you know, class, like class ascendancy, like class mobility is pretty much at a standstill, right? Where you are born kind of dic very closely dictates where you will end up, right? So, you know, I have a problem with using just a metric like IQ because it just is so socially and economically like mediated that's really hard for me to try to step back and be able to even parse like which part is biological, mm -hmm. which part is social. Like to me, that's not not it. Given the society we live in, that's just not a meaningful distinction that I would make. When we mm -hmm. flatten it all out, then it'll be really interesting to see how the IQ argument yeah, shakes out for sure. But yeah, think, we're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, I think there's different ways to interpret that. Like, like, like taking at face value that there is like a data of difference, right? I mean, I don't think that that necessarily invalidates the idea that that racism is playing a part in that. Uh, if if not uh, racism in the immediate present, which is all around us, but also historical racism. These are left narratives that I think have truth to them. Yeah. And I am not red, you know, red pilled enough or black pilled enough or whatever to just say that everything coming out of the progressive left is bullshit, right? I mean, they have their points. They have their view of history that makes a lot of sense to me as well. The problem, I think, is this notion that, you know, we could correct for that by, you know, um, sort of setting, just sort of hitting, like, reset at a certain point and saying, like, okay, well, if we get enough, uh, you know, black people into Harvard at a certain point, we'll just kind of, like, you know, we'll fix that problem. And that's not, obviously, not how that's going to work right like if yeah there's a lot of racial inequity in terms of of educational outcomes starting young yeah. uh you know for those who just kind of fall back on the idea that this is like you know genetically determined that to me gets to a point where i'm like yeah we're, we're going charles murray here like this is race science uh i'm not i'm not a i'm not a believer in that uh, yeah. i think his mm -hmm. you know I think well, his interpretations because, of that are quite just off. Just because I and here's here's this is why I would say is that a conservative idea or a liberal idea? Just because I said IQ is real doesn't mean that I believe every right wing thing said about it. Like for example, a socialist could admit that IQ is real and then say because IQ is real, we we need to live in a society that diminishes the influence of genetics on your total upbringing or on your, on your total opportunities given. So socialists would say. We need to make a society that is sort of um, um, flexible to IQ. Uh, basically, you don't have to have a super high mental capacity inborn to do well in, in our country. And that would be a valid position. I disagree with it, but it would be a valid position. Um, my yeah. posi my position on that is my position on that is um, I think that there is a place for equal opportunity and um, 
and then there's a place for meritocracy uh, and and you need both for a for a both a healthy harmonious diverse and a strong excellent country so at the k-12 level like I, I do think that people should be guaranteed you know access to public education in our country i'm still a believer in public education a lot of people aren't on the mm-hmm. right i'm still a believer that people should be guaranteed access to you know fair public education but if people choose to study really hard and therefore develop a better IQ because IQ is partially environmental, because they're studying really hard, then they should get to those universities on their merit because supposedly the idea goes they can contribute more to society off of their intellect. Just like people who develop their muscles can contribute more to society as a builder or construction workers. People who develop their business acumen mm-hmm. can contribute more in financial dealings. So I, I don't believe in in an equity in every place. I believe in equality of opportunity followed by meritocracy, competitive yeah, I meritocracy. Like I believe, yeah, that that is very fair. Um, I mean, I, I agree with. I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I like the positioning of IQ as a as a loose. Uh, roll-up metric for cognitive ability, but not something that's necessarily just inborn. I think when we talk about, I think the uh, the American preoccupation with, with IQ is the, the assumption that it's a fixed a fixed quantity in you that can only be that can only be revealed or submerged. But I like the idea. But it's it's a muscle that you can develop, much like any other. You can be you can maximize. There there are cap. Everyone has different ceilings, but everyone can maximize their capabilities mm-hmm. i think that's fair um yeah. i think that, I, mean, I think I, it's rhetorically satisfying i think it's more rhetorically satisfying this notion of equal opportunity but you know not equal outcomes i mean i think it's rhetorically satisfying but i don't think it's quite resolving the problem because like the the, the, the issue with that framing is this presupposition that we could distinguish what's an outcome from what's an opportunity but, you know, everything at some level is both, right? Everything at some yeah, level is point. setting every moment, every outcome is going to affect future outcomes from there, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you could call getting into Harvard an outcome. Uh, you could also call it uh, an, an opportunity. And mm-hmm. everything, you know, post-college and pre-college can be the same thing. Getting mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. job could be an outcome, but it's also an opportunity. Making a lot yeah. of money is an outcome, but it's also an opportunity for those of, uh, who have the benefit of that, you know, your children. So, Mm. uh, I I think that I've, I've heard that formulation a lot. Um, I think it's trending a little bit more right though. It is a classically liberal position, right? Uh, but I, I do find that it is more rhetorically snappy than it is practical in real life. So I, I, I I think that yeah, I don't think it's a great starting point for a principle, but I, I understand the the point. I, I think it's a gu- it's a guide, but I don't think that it can resolve, uh, you know, really fine grained disputes and, and things like that. Cause... Do you be- do you believe? I'm assuming you don't. Do you believe in entirely equal outcomes, or where do you, where do you draw the line? Oh no, I, I I don't know. I don't know the answer. All right, I, I don't have an answer. I'm more comfortable saying that I think we're up shit's creek to a large degree without many without an oar. Like I I don't know if there's there's easy answers. I do understand why people say that because it's a good starting point to start thinking about things, but it quickly runs into problems, I think. Um so yeah. It's a it's a fundamental unease with the concept of a hierarchical society. 
Could um, be. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Because I mean, if we're talking about meritocracy, like in, in Kenny's articulation here, that we want to identify the most talented people who we are assuming will be the most capable of improving society. And that's, that's, that's the, that's the crux of the focus here. Um, we're still articulating a high a hierarchy based society where there will be people at the top being in positions of leadership, management, you know, innovation, all of that, mm. and people who are essentially going to be ruled by them. We're just we just yeah. want a little bit more say I, over the ruling class. I, I, well, well, a a multiple hierarchy society. That that's sure. that, that's the difference because sort of what you said is like people are ruled, but the thing is people can be ruled in one respect, but rulers in another respect. Absolutely. We live in a, we live in a, in a very, very complex society. Um, mm -hmm. We establish, like, I think America is very definitively against like birthright hierarchy, right? The American experiment, social experiment is very, very clear on that. We reject the notion of a king. We reject the legitimacy of, you know, inherited power. In um, we seem to be yeah. getting dangerously close to accepting the legitimacy of inherited wealth. But, you know, we'll leave that for another, we'll leave that for another topic. Um, but I think it's like, it's, it's just central to the, like a little bit of unease. Like, are we, are we... Are we flattening society with these me these equity measures, or are we just trying to articulate a better, a, a more equitable, a hierarchy that mm -hmm. we can better live with? Um, I don't know. Like, there, I don't think there is an answer to that because you know, like, I don't know if I actually want to be ruled by society's smartest people. Those tend to also be the psychopaths of us, you know. Yeah. Um, there's no answer to this. I think. Well, don't I, you worry know, about I would, that. You have Joe Biden. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, that comforts my cold, shriveled heart. <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe Biden terrifies me. Um, <laughs> oh my god, he's, he's terrifying. But no, yeah. I think you know. Here's the thing: is like this is this is start, starting to stray a bit from our original topic, which I think is good though, because I, I, I'm, you know, I think we do do need to. I think as Asians, I think we need to expand, you know, our our zone of comfort in terms of like what we weigh in on and you know what what we think of as our interests. So I like thinking mm -hmm. big. I like Asians thinking big. All right, that's the end of part one of a two-part podcast. The second part of this will be available on our Patreon feed. And if you want to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash planamag.